You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. 1 Peter chapter 2 uh, is where we're going to be. We're going to be starting in verse 1. Uh, we are going through redemption's story, a 30,000 foot view of um, God's redemptive history throughout the Old Testament. And really just trying to again remind ourselves that the Bible is not a collection of random stories. It is one story, God's story, uh, of His redemptive work throughout the ages all the way down to us. Uh, and the, the, when we take Scripture, we don't take it in a way of individual stories that we just try to uh, you know, have a moral principle that we apply to our lives, but we see our story in God's story and how that plays out. We took a look at Adam and, uh, and answered the question, how did sin enter the world and how does that affect us? And we uh, made the biblical statement that in Adam all sinned, that we uh, wrestled with that reality. We then took a look at Abraham uh, and that God makes this covenant promise, this unbreakable uh, pact of salvation where He steps into our life. And not only does He say, I will do these things for you, but ultimately He's saying, I will do for you what is your responsibility that you cannot do for yourself. And last week we took a look at Moses and the law, the giving of the law, and asked the question, what are we as Christians supposed to do with legalism? Because that's still kind of a thing within a lot of Christian circles. How do we as Christians approach the law of God uh, as it relates, and again we were reminded that God gave the law not as something that a ladder that we should climb, that somehow if we climb that law ladder we attain some kind of uh, righteousness that we have then earned, but it was a gracious gift to God to show us and reveal to us just how desperately we actually do need Him. Uh, in the musical world, there is something called a crescendo within music. Uh, it's the point of which there's all these pieces are playing and then all of a sudden everything grows to this very loud culminating point. And for the Jewish people, that took place when David became king over Israel. It was at that point that they stopped functionally being a nomadic, uh, wandering peoples. They had been in the land, they had owned it, they had had family possessions but it was really when David became king and consolidated the nation of Israel into the nation of Israel, Judah and Israel and all of the tribes under his kingship, that Israel was established. And at that point in time, in that moment, it was to the Jewish people the answer of God's covenant promise to Abraham. That when God made that promise to Abraham, when He pulled him out and He said, this land... I will give to your descendants and they shall be as numerous as the stars of the of the sky or the sand on the sea. And even though we had Saul and the the, the issues with that they weren't consolidated. We had this period between uh, Moses, when they came out of Israel, if you, I mean, out of uh, Egypt, uh, and they had the wandering right, and then we have Joshua, where they crossed the the sea or the uh, the Jordan into uh, into the Promised Land, into Canaan, and all of that time period, and they begin to conquer the land, and then you have this period of the judges, where the people, everybody does kind of what is right in their own eyes. They had the law that had all been given to them. God had explicitly told them every. 
everything about what it looked like for them to be His covenant people. And everybody kind of took that for whatever they thought it was worth and did whatever they wanted to do. And God punished them and uh, uh, nations would rise against them and then they would repent and cry out to God and God would raise up a judge, a leader that would then take them and conquer that and liberate them and things would be good. And then as things were good, things started to taper off and the cycle again and again and again it happened until finally uh, the people said, enough, we need a king. And so they appointed a guy whose main leadership quality was, anybody know? He was tall. That was it. Do you know we haven't accomplished much more uh, than, than that in society? Uh, it's, uh, a number of years ago, they actually did a height study of Fortune 500 CEOs, and it was, by and large, most of them were over six feet tall, uh, which was above the national average on that. So apparently, there's something like, I can see him; he should lead us, right? I don't know what the I don't know what the I don't know what the uh, the governing factor of that was, but we obviously know that Saul was not God's anointed; he was not God's leader, but David was. And we know the stories, right? We know all the, the, the flannel graph things of David and, uh, and tending out in his sheep and David and Goliath and the, the craziness of Saul trying to kill him and David's story and all of those kind of pictures. And then he becomes king and, and he, there's uh, this conquest and there's finally peace in the land and there's so much peace in the land that David doesn't feel like he needs to go out to battle in spring when kings go out to war. He sends his generals out and he stays back and he sees a young woman taking a bath on top of uh, her roof and he uh, calls for her and functionally rapes her in the, the conquest of that uh, and uh, bears a child by her and murders her husband and all of those kind of things. And, jo- and Jonathan, the, pr- the um, uh, prophet, comes to him and, and confronts him on it, gives him the finger in the chest, you're the man, right? We know all of those things and the, the dynamics of his children vying for uh, uh for uh, his kingship and and then it seems like there's this crescendo moment and then you have Solomon in all of his wisdom who ends very stupidly and the kingdom goes right that's that's basically like several hundred years of story in one in one shot And if you're standing in Jesus' day, looking backwards into that moment and reading the Scriptures where it says, this was David, God's anointed, God's the first chosen king of Israel by God, who is described as a man after God's own heart, and yet his parenting style leads to such chaos and destruction that within one generation afterwards, the kingdom is split apart. And you can feel this sense of tension in Jesus' day as they look back and go, but God, you said to Abraham, this kingdom, that, that his descendants would possess this land, that it would be theirs, that they would rule in this place, and that the kingdom of David would be so profound. 
And it's so pervasive throughout all of the scriptures, uh, talking about uh, uh, David's throne, David's lineage, David's branch, this kingly responsibility that was going to exist, that was going to establish their kingdom upon the earth. And it feels like this great crescendo that all of a sudden gets ended with one of those like... uh, uh, I think probably the most annoying instrument that is actually used in educational system is the recorder, right? You know, uh, uh, you ever watch the the uh, the video, you know, the 20th Century Fox that has the dun 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 dun, dun, dun right? And, and somebody they take all of that music out and they have somebody doing that on a recorder, and it's awful. I mean, it's just it feels so bad, right? That's kind of what the kingdom of Israel looked like, right? It was like this big, you know, sounding resolve, and then all of a sudden, right? It was just awful. And they stand and they look and they go, man, what in the world is this? A sense of great disappointment. And it's into that moment, into that sense of kingdom, this promised thing throughout all of God's covenant to Abraham and the story of all of that and the nation and the people and this grand disappointment of everybody standing around and going, we have been in constant conflict and oppression by this point for a thousand years. What are we to do with the kingdom? And it is in that moment that Jesus comes in and preaches a new sermon. His first sermon was really short. Jesus comes in and says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We've talked about how man broke, how sin happened. We've talked about God's covenant. We've talked about God's law. And today we want to talk about the concept of kingdom and our role within the kingdom. And Peter is wrestling with this question, trying to help the church at large figure out as they are scattered about. In 1 Peter chapter 1, as Peter introduces himself, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia, Chalcedonia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. When Peter begins this letter, he is going to talk kingdom themes. Big picture ideas of the nation of God. And yet he begins it by addressing them as Aliens, foreigners, sojourners, individuals who are not in their home. As we study sociology and we study history, a lot of times we see ebbs and flows or maybe pendulum swings back and forth of reactionary kind of things. And one of the things that has been a a reactionary um, thing over the last hundred years has been the concept of nationalism. And we see the concept of nationalism in clear form right now in the Russian and Ukraine conflict. We're kind of dumbfounded as we're looking at it, saying like, what in the world is he doing? 
right? What is Putin do? What what is this mess? And if we uh, can see it from the standpoint from them, they are viewing it as nationalism. They are liberating people who they think identify as Russians. Not as Ukrainians, but as Russians. And that's what they did with Crimea, and that's what they did with the other peninsula that was there. It was their view of saying, our nation is so valuable, so wonderful, the dynamic of who we think we are is such an important thing that it warrants mass death and destruction. And this idea of nationalism has been a point throughout the, the uh, history over the last hundred years specifically uh, that has been a major component of war and great conflict. It was the isolational or isolationist mentality that we had in America through World War I and World War II. Why we're so late into those because we saw ourselves as safe and those, that's their, those nations and they can do whatever they want to do and we're great and we're safe and we're wonderful and it wasn't until our safeness stopped and they attacked us in some capacity where we went, well, we need to attack this and we need to respond accordingly. And this kind of nationalism has uh, takes on all kind of different forms. Some of those uh, are, I think, benign or, or okay, but in oftentimes they are very, very dangerous. But it steps to the point of nationalism not as a sense of pride, but as a sense of superiority. Nazism ultimately was a form of nationalism. And that idea of that. And in the midst of all of that, Christians have had to wrestle with their place in the world. Who are we as Christians in a world that is so utterly divided? Because as angry as we are at Russia for doing what they're doing in Ukraine, do you know that we have millions of brothers and sisters in Christ that live in Russia? who we will spend eternity with in perfect fellowship. And what are we to do with that? How do we, how do we reconcile that? How, how do we, how do we uh, wrestle with those kind of dynamics for us who live in uh, a nation that is relatively safe at the moment? And what are we to do when we feel like that safeness that we have could possibly be threatened? Do we react in a nationalist kind of defensiveness that says, no, 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 ours is the best. And so therefore we ought to maintain it at all costs. And this was the great challenge that Jesus had to face as He taught His disciples in their day. They're looking back and saying, we are Israel. We are God's chosen nation. And who are these Romans? Who are these Gentiles? Who are these Samaritans to think anything less than we are God's people? Well, let's see what he has to say about that and how that might relate to us. 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, he starts with a place of humility. 
Like newborn babies, long for pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to Him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this contained in Scripture... Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the Word. And to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I, <clears throat> I urge you as, here it is again, aliens and strangers to abstain from, f- from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, Glorify God in the day of His visitation. How much do we see the church in the West living this passage? For one thing, there's a meme that I saw here recently, um, and it was uh, it was a picture of Jesus. It was passed around quite a bit. It was a picture of Jesus. Well, I say it was a picture of Jesus. It was the actor that played Jesus in The Passion of the Christ. right? So that guy, uh, kind of in the clouds, overlooking an 18-wheeler. And it, was, and it said, uh, Jesus, the greatest American, praying for the truckers in Canada as they do whatever, you know, the blockade thing. And I wanted to scream. I was like, you have got to be kidding. Like, there is nothing. What in the world is this? And we go, how did we get to that? It's because when we read passages that talk about what it means for us to be the people of God, we forgot that that means it actually doesn't have anything to do with the geographical boundary. I 
remember hearing a speaker a number of years ago say this, and I thought it was profound. He said, Christian, if you're a, if you're a Republican or you're a Democrat, whatever it is, political party that you affiliate with, you have more in common with a teenage African girl who loves Jesus, doesn't speak your language, but is a follower of Jesus, than you have with anybody that is in your political field who does not love Jesus. And it certainly doesn't feel like that, right? At least that's not the expectation. This is to say, no, 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 if they're in this, this ideology that we have somehow taken Christianity and we've made it the blanket for what it means to live as a nation. But friends, this principle of the kingdom, this gospel, good news of the kingdom, was this. That there were a people that God gave a covenant to who He said, you will be My people and I will be your God. And they rebelled and rebelled and rebelled. And their kings rebelled and rebelled and rebelled. And God sent judgment upon them. And yet they rebelled and rebelled and rebelled. And in that, God says, the kingdom of God is here. And you look around and you go, what? Hey, nothing that looks good about this. It's not, this isn't what I signed up for. This is, what I, this is what it sounded like God was telling Abraham about. And He says of them that if you have accepted this cornerstone, this chief stone, that it was this precious one, and you who believe in Him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But he says there's some that didn't believe. And they're not in the kingdom. They weren't a people. But in verse 9 he says, but you, and he gives four distinct things, that as we think of the kingdom, we need to realign ourselves with every single day. Regardless of our... Uh, political leanings, regardless of our vocation, regardless of whether we're uh, a man or a woman, married or single, young, old, we align ourselves within this kingdom for God's good purposes as aliens and strangers wherever we find ourselves. Whatever is on our passport doesn't make a difference. We're still an alien and a stranger where we find ourselves. The first off is this, and I think it's profound. He says, but you are a chosen race. A chosen race. That passage has been abused a lot over the last 200 years. And it would be really easy just to throw that out and say like, well, we don't, I mean, that, that's too confusing, too hard. We don't want to have that there. So what is he saying? Well, the old King James used the term, says, you are a chosen generation. 
And when we think of generations, we're just thinking of time, right? But the distinction of both of those is, how did you get your genetic ethnicity? How did you get it? Somebody tell me, how did you get your genetic ethnicity? Yeah, the good old-fashioned way, right? Like, that's, that's, how, that's, how that, that's how that took place. There was a mingling of genes, and that became you, right? You didn't pick it. None of us, on the day of our birth, you know, they hand you a form, and which one do you want to be, and you sign it, you know. It wasn't none of that, right? You just got born. And this is the word that he uses here. When it says, you are a chosen race, your race is by birth. That's why the King James uses generations. It is this picture or generation, a birth of a generation. And we ask the question, well, what is it? What is the chosen race? And the answer here is in this, in this context of that, it is these foreigners, these aliens, who have been born again. Born anew. Born fresh. It's a pretty profound thing when you study Christianity across the globe. We're so narrow in the view of it because of our experience, just kind of where we are. But when you take the majority world church, the, the, where the rest of the world uh, Christians are, if you take Christianity in the world and you collect the data of that and you find an average, what is the average Christian in the world? How old are they? What do they look like? Where do they live? And what is their ethnicity? The average has actually changed over the last hundred years, and as it should, as as the gospel has gone forward. But today, in 2022, the average Christian in the world is a 16-year-old African girl living in sub-Saharan Africa. That's the average Christian in the world. That's why I think it's profound for us to think about the context of we have more in common with them than you have with any coworker who does not know Jesus. And that stretches us because the reality is if we think about it, we don't, I don't know them, I don't know that culture, I don't know that thing. But because of Jesus in this, they like us are a chosen race born of God into His kingdom. Chosen by Him into His family. That's a profound thing and the nature of this is that your parents didn't choose you. They just got you. right? Whatever came out, that's what they got. And you did not choose them. But the kingdom of God is different in that God chose you. On your worst day, when you don't think very much of yourself, remember this. The king of the universe chose you. Knowing your past, your hurts, habits, and hang-ups better than you do. And he chose you to be born of his family. That's part of the kingdom of God. Secondly, he says, not only are you a chosen race, you are a royal priesthood. This dynamic of uh, what it means for us to be bought into the kingdom. If He is King Jesus, 
This is one of those things I don't think we emphasize enough. The profound nature of the kingdom of God is that Jesus said that we would be co-heirs with Him in the kingdom. We don't get to heaven and just end up as, as waitstaff in the kingdom of God. We end up as co-heirs with Christ. And what does that look like? It says, in the reality of this kingdom, we are a royal priesthood. Remember, the priesthood system was that there was designated individuals. It was their responsibility to intercede on behalf of the nation. That people, when they would come with their offerings, they would come to the priest, they would give the offering to the priest, and the priest would do this act to make it so that they could be reconciled to the Father. So when Peter uses this imagery of a, uh, of a royal priesthood involving all of the church, what role do you think he is telling us our responsibility is to be if an entire nation... If an entire people, all of them are priests, what do you think their job is? To intercede on behalf of those that are not. To be those that come and bear the truth of this redemptive story. Of of their adoption, of their, their family that they have been bought into, of the good news of the kingdom. To bear that truth outwardly for those that are not in. And to show them what it means to be. Because remember, the, the priests, they never actually reconciled anybody. God did that. The priest just did the stuff to help them walk through that journey. And that's what He's called us to be. The kingdom of God, as it relates to us, is not just that it's the safeguard, it's us for and no more kind of a dynamic of, of the kingdom. The kingdom that was laid out, even when God gave the nation of Israel their kingdom. Remember the whole uh, law system. He had the, uh, the moral law, which was the don't kill, don't steal, and all the fingers that we did you know, last week to help you learn the Ten Commandments. Uh, but then He also gave the ceremonial law, the way in which the sacrifices were to be and then the kosher law, the, the garments that they were wearing, and the food they were not supposed to eat, and those kind of things, so that they would stand out differently because the intent of God was that they as a nation would declare the goodness of God to other nations and show them that there is a true God in Israel because there were no other gods, no other real gods anywhere else. And they did a pretty poor job of that. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and third, a holy, and here it is, nation. A holy nation. You know, when we think about uh, nations around the world, it's an interesting thing uh, because we live in the United States of America. It's the melting pot of the world, right? Ethnically speaking, we are culturally more culturally diverse than almost any other uh, place on the planet. But when you think of places like Finland, right, there is a distinct, if I say, describe for me a Finnish person, you'll have a kind of mental picture of what you think that kind of person is and what they look like, right? Uh, and describe for me an Irish person and you have this picture of what you think that they would look like. 
Well, the kingdom of God as a distinct nation is born up of those who have been born or born again into God's family who are realizing that they have been redeemed by the priesthood of uh, believers and the priesthood of Christ as He has interceded on their behalf. And as such, it makes us, regardless of border, a set-apart or holy nation. This nation does not have a flag. It does not have a border. And at this moment, it does not have a land. It does one day. The kingdom of heaven, ultimately, he says, he comes and makes all things new. And ultimately, that kingdom is the whole of creation. And we will rule and reign with him. And in the midst of all of that, he says, you are a people for God's own possession. That He holds us. And this is so encouraging because we can look at this and we can say like, this is, should be a rallying cry for us to grow strong and grow powerful and all of those kind of things. But he goes on to it and he says, why is it that we are to be these things? so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. How are we doing at that? How are we we doing at proclaiming the goodness of God in the reality of our lives? Honestly, it's why I got so weepy talking about Donna this morning. Because as she was talking about just the physical healing that she went through, she was passionately praising God for all of it. She said when she was laying there on the ice, trying to get the uh, four-wheeler off of her husband's chest as it laid on top of him for uh, almost 30 minutes before they were finally able to get it off of, off of him with a crushed sternum and a rib that had punctured his lung uh, and the, the ice underneath the lake cracking underneath him. She said she heard what she described as angels singing. And I teased her that they were singing, Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. And this has been her story. That regardless of how life has gone on, she points people to the excellencies of Christ. And it was a supercharge for me. Because he says, for you are once not a people. And this is so funny because there are Jews that are in this and he's saying, this is true of them. You were not a people. But now you are. And you had not received mercy, but now you have. And again, he goes back to, I beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. Back to it. It's very easy for us to settle into this ideology that we're not aliens and strangers, that this is our home. I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Don't give in to the kingdom of this world. Don't give in to the, the, the ruler of this age who he has a plan for what his kingdom should look like and your role in it. 
Keep your behavior excellent amongst the Gentiles, those outside of this kingdom, so that in the things in which they, and I love this, so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, because they are going to slander you as evildoers by their perspective. I'll say it this way. Peter was writing into a, into a world context that uh, the most patriotic thing that you could do in Rome at the time was attend the games. The, the, the gladiatorial games and the chariot races and all of those kind of things. It was expected that that's, that's what it meant to be a good Roman. You followed that. You followed the patrons of that. You attended those sporting events. You went to those things. You saw the carnage and you said, Hail Caesar, go Rome. Bread and games. If we give them that, they'll stay happy. And that's what it means to attend it. The early church took an extremely strong stance on that. In fact, um, some of the earliest documents about that uh, of early church discipline where people were kicked out of the church was they, the church said, if you attend the gladiatorial games, you are not in the church. You're out. And so ultimately saying, it's evidence that you are not a follower of Jesus. Ultimately, they were looking at people and saying... In, in, a, in a functional way, because obviously those are e- those were evil, evil events. But it would functionally be the same of saying, "Don't stand up and say the Pledge of Allegiance, or don't don't sing the national anthem at a at a basketball game. Do not do it." And everybody else looking at you, going like, "Why are you so non-patriotic? Why don't you love this nation? Why don't you Why don't you pay homage to Caesar?" And ultimately, the test became, "Say Caesar is Lord, and you won't die." Patriotism, in a very strong sense. And their answer was, they said, I can't because Jesus is Lord. So with that in mind, listen to this. Keep your behavior excellent amongst the Gentiles so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of His visitation. He's saying, as they judge you to be evil in their eyes, do good. Such that it does change their heart that when the King comes into His kingdom, they'll glorify Him. And I really love this. That they are observing us, but they're glorifying God. The kingdom of God is not ever about us pursuing our own glory, our own notoriety, our own attaboy. The kingdom of God is always about us pursuing God's glory with this hope that our neighbor and our coworker, our family member, who we may uh, politically align with, Uh, ideologically align with, vocationally align with, but they don't know and love Jesus. That our prayers that on that day God has changed their hearts such that they would see His glory through our good deeds. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was Jesus' words. And I think it's so profound because when we talk about the gospel, right, 
Every time we talk about the Gospel, the Gospel is the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Right? That's the Gospel for our sins. That God did for us in Jesus what we could not do for ourselves. And yet, Jesus came preaching the Gospel of the Kingdom. Pre-life, or middle of life. Pre-death, burial, resurrection. Why? Because that kingdom was here in Jesus' day. And through all of the trial of Jesus' life, and all of the trial of the early church, and all of the trial of the later church up until this moment now, the kingdom of God is here. And our responsibility is to do what the nation of Israel never did. Show the nations and bring them in of the goodness and splendor and glory of God. Why? Because He's worthy. And because we were once not a people. And now we are. This is the image of the kingdom. And David was so significant, not because he was good, but because through him, Jesus would rule and reign on this earth. And so the line of David was fulfilled. And the throne of David shall never be not occupied. Whatever we deal with this week, we deal with knowing that our King still sits on His throne. And that bureaucrats and aristocrats and oligarchs and dictators cause their mayhem across the globe. But Jesus is unfazed and His kingdom is without end. And by His death, burial, and resurrection, you and I are in His kingdom. And the one job that we have is to tell others of His excellencies and invite them in, regardless of their race, regardless of their nation, regardless of their political ideology, regardless of any dividing line of them, our responsibility is to show His excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness. Every one of us was once an enemy of this kingdom. But by His grace, by His mercy, and according to His foreknowledge, we were sanctified by His Spirit, sprinkled with His blood, so that the kingdom of God would reign in our heart. Let's pray. Father God, we are so incredibly again thankful for the reality of your kingdom. That even as we see situations in our own nation go into hell in a handbasket, as we see nations around the world warring and making a mockery, as we see people like Vladimir Putin taking your scripture and using it as justification for his war, as we see people abusing, as we see slavery, 
as we see human trafficking, as we see lies and deceits and all of the evil of this world, we're tempted to feel like the disciples of Jesus in that day looking and saying, what is this kingdom? And yet, Lord, that's why You had the kingdom of Israel. So that we would have something to see that says God's promises are true even when it doesn't look like it. Help us to live as aliens and strangers in this world. Knowing that our kingdom, your kingdom, is to come. We love you, God. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've been blessed by the hearing of God's word. Feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com.